the Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week on the show, my co-host Chris Beam talks with Tim Alberta, a writer for The Atlantic, formerly of Politico, and author of the books The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in Age of Extremism, and American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. And I think in many ways, this conversation is a combination of those two books. Chris has his PhD from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. So he's very interested in the role that religion plays in our public lives and in our democracy. And you may remember that back in the fall, Chris spoke with former Republican strategist Tim Miller. So he's also very interested in the state of the Republican Party and how things got to be that way. This conversation does start off a bit heavier on the religion side than we typically go in our episodes, but he does a nice job of bringing it back around to democracy toward the end. So I hope you enjoy Chris Beam's conversation with Tim Alberta. Tim Alberta, thank you very much for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. There's a quote from that you uh that you make by uh, Philip Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College. And he says, some of us are afraid of suffering harm from a white man. He's, he, you know, Wheaton College is, a, is an evangelical school, highly regarded in, um, in suburban Chicago. Um, and he says to his students and the, the Wheaton community, some of us are afraid of suffering harm from a white majority culture or for some of us becoming a racial minority in a non-white culture, or for some of us becoming a religious minority in a post-Christian culture. We all have our fears. There are things happening in the culture and also happening in the church that only exacerbate them. And, and I read that, and the thought occurred to me that this book isn't that different from your last one. And that um, both of them are dealing with a group of people who um, are forswearing themselves because they are afraid. And even more specifically, they're afraid of losing their worldly status. And I, I want to just ask you, you know, what do you think of that? And um, and did that thought ever occur to you? You know, it did. And I think it's a a keen observation on your part. Um, in many ways, what my first book, American Carnage, attempted to do was to write a first draft of history in examining the institutional crack-up of the Republican Party, which is to say that uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a moment that was defined by this sort of swirling insecurity cultural, economic, social, political insecurity that uh, the forces inside the Republican Party that had traditionally uh, been served as as sort of gatekeepers and as moderators and that were traditionally able to uh, sort of um, dictate outcomes and keep things relatively stable and on the tracks, they were suddenly overpowered by the, 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 the anxious 
outsiders and who and and really the the anxious masses that were that were willing to listen to the outsiders and who decided that it was time to flip the script and kind of lay siege to uh to the castle walls and i think in many ways what we're dealing with inside of american evangelicalism today is something similar um I think it, it has many, at the very least, it has many of the same root causes. Uh, when when you when you try to understand the ways in which American life and American culture have changed in the let's say the past twenty years, really in the post nine eleven era, when you think about the demographic changes, the the sweeping cultural changes, and the you know the subsequent uh, transformation really of our political system and particularly of the the Republican Party uh, to which the overwhelming majority of white evangelical Christians claim their political allegiance then you know it's not all that surprising to see that some of this uh great disruption that first came for the Republican Party is now coming for the white evangelical church. The, the, the two are sort of operating on parallel tracks in many ways. Yeah, you have a, uh, a, a chapter or two where you talk about really um, the the downfall of, of uh, Liberty University, at least insofar as it is a um, a sign of, you know, uh, God's work in a fallen world. And, you know, it struck me that you're, you, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, Liberty University, it's it's kind of a metaphor for evangelicals and the Republican Party um, they were happy to um, employ, to harness their political power, to take their money and their votes, and they were willing to talk the talk. Um, but then when, at the end of the day, this was about power, and that was a more important um a, uh, objective than anything else. And that, um, you know, some of this Jesus stuff was kind of just getting in the way. And you still have, as you do in the Republican Party, um, a, a large cadre of evangelicals who are, you know, absolutely four square committed to their, um, to their Christian faith. Um, but they kind of sometimes in, in many ways in the history you recount, they got rolled and, um, and treated unfairly. And I, and I, and I feel like that's sometimes what happens in the Republican party too. What do you think of that? Yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's fair. And, um, you know, of, of course the question that I've gotten left and right is, well, you know, how many, how many people are we talking about who have been radicalized in the church and, and in the Republican Party for that matter? And how do you try to quantify this? And I don't know that there is any easy quantifying it, but I think that one of the, uh, one of the really persistent 
observations and conclusions that I've reached is that you do seem to have inside uh, of both the American Evangelical Church, and I think probably to a lesser extent inside the institution of the Republican Party, you do still have a, a large remnant of individuals who are sort of horrified by what they've seen and uh, who are who who remain quite resistant to this hostile takeover by the sort of populist, anti-intellectual, blood and soil, God and country forces that have reshaped these, these institutions in, in such a short period of time. But I think that that remnant is... Um, is out outgunned and outmanned in many ways, um, not just in terms of the raw numbers, but I think one of the points I raise a few times in the book is what it what it looks like when a highly mobilized, highly uh, invested, highly vocal, yeah. and, and really uh, and really combative minority runs up against a rather timid and placid and uh, and and non-confrontational majority and 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 you know what what we see time and again is that the former tends to overpower the latter quite easily and i think that that's certainly been the story inside the american evangelical church uh even more so than inside the republican party which is to say that when i've spent time with pastors dozens and dozens of pastors around the country who have had something akin to a civil war breaking out inside of their congregations in recent years almost invariably they will say to me that the the, the percentage of the real sort of radical fringe element in their church that's kind of made life miserable for everyone is no more than maybe 15% maybe 20% tops but that leaves a large majority of folks who don't agree with uh, the positions, don't agree with the rhetoric, don't agree with uh, the direction that these folks want to take the church. And yet they have largely been been silent and complacent in the face of the insurgency. And, and, and that is, I think, the fundamental dilemma inside of, of evangelicalism today. It is a... Um... It is a it is a group of people who are who have a fairly straightforward narrative, right? That this is a battle between good and evil, and they are absolutely certain that they are on the right side. And that is not it's not merely a Christian thing. That is a human thing. That when you have both of those. Um, it is, it's empowering, and it's hard to, uh, hard to resist, hard to argue with. It's, it's just you know, um, uh, there, there is a, a power that comes from certainty, uh, that is, uh, you know, hard to, hard to combat. I mean, there's, it is striking to me how infrequently you hear, um these folks talking about the moat in their own eye and that only God is good. I just never hear that. And I think that's because that is, um, those are our Christian um, concepts that just don't fit into the narrative. They're not useful for the narrative. 
Well, look, I, I think um, you're at, at the very end there. You, you, you're touching on something that's central to this, which is it, it is a, a Christian ideal. It is a Christian conceit to uh, to interrogate oneself, to hold. You know, I, a great pastor once told me that the Bible is a mirror that we hold up to ourselves to see how depraved and how broken we are and that and how how much we need Christ to transform our hearts and to make us more like him and and that sort of self criticism that sort of uncertainty that embrace of of uh of the 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 mess that we are and the uh, recognition that God and only God can can ultimately redeem us that is obviously the 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 essential christian world view and yet you see very little of that practiced and and implemented in our everyday politics and i think one is forced to reach the uncomfortable conclusion at a certain point that the reason that those christian ethics fail to inform our partisan political engagement is that our identity, many of us, is far more rooted in our partisan political engagement than it is mm -hmm. in our Christian ethics. Uh, it's the, because the two are often at odds with one another, and it really becomes a, a binary choice. If not a binary choice, then at the very least, it, it, it requires a certain priority, a certain ordering of those identities. And I think so much of what I've written in the book is pointing to the, the uncomfortable fact that for far too many Christians, their identity as followers of Jesus has become subservient to these other identities. Yeah, no, I, um, I, uh, I think that is um, not only true, it's also for, you know, for any believer, it's it's just nothing short of, of, of tragic because there's just, you know, when, when you, when you, there's just no no way around it. Christian nationalism is a heresy. <laughs> and and once it, it should not be that hard to call. Um, and once you step into that, um, you know, step across that Rubicon, it's not hard to accept all the rest that goes along with it namely you know that um that if you're doing the lord's work then doing things that are not um commensurate with you know that god said don't do is okay or at least um um acceptable because of the stakes of what you're what you're arguing with that's right i mean the 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 ends begin to justify the means almost uh, almost as a, a matter of reflex and it becomes it becomes effortless to say well sure this behavior this rhetoric this sort of activity uh, is not consistent with the teachings of Christ but we are locked in a struggle for the soul of our civilization, and and you have to think about the the big picture here. You have to think about the long term. So it's uh, it, it's, and, and of course, this is not just a problem when it comes to 
dealing with extremism and and the potential for you know civic unrest and violence but even you know as i dedicate a chapter late in the book to the epidemic of sexual abuse and cover-ups yeah. in the church i mean it's it, it's part of that same dynamic where it becomes it becomes uh second nature to say well you know the the church is is fighting for god's will to be done on earth and if word gets out that the pastor of this church has been abusing children, then that is, you know, ipso facto a win for the forces of evil. And therefore we we can't allow that to happen. We, you know, we 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 have to be thinking in terms of the the the, the cosmic collision here of good versus evil. And if you're not helping the side of good, then you are by definition helping by the definition. side of evil. You know, and that that becomes the trap that 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 the 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 false the false choice paradigm that so many of us have, have have had to exist in. Well, and and I <laughs> I am not at all persuaded that the the that they are describing reality accurately. You quote Richard Land, who you, you know you can can remind me. Uh, what he what he, what his position was when he said it, but he said we want the fifties without the racism and the sexism, and that's what the ob objective is, right? There's nothing that I know that's in the Bible that says, you know, nineteen fifties. That's that's the uh, that's the gold standard. That's once you got that, you're good, right? I just I don't see how um, that objective translates into anything directly or specifically christian it's about it's about a culture it's not about a faith that that's that's well said and you know let's let's just um let's strip away some of the ambiguity here in this part of the conversation i mean when you say that it's about the culture look we are dealing with the 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 white evangelical church right and and when you think about what the not, you know, leave it to Beaver idealized 1950s America looked like. Sure, it might have been, it might have been really good for some of these white Protestants who did not face any particular discrimination for the color of their skin or for their faith tradition or uh, or, or any of that. Um, but what about for their brothers and sisters in the faith? Their 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 Catholic brothers and sisters. Their black. And brown brothers and sisters, uh, the 1950s weren't uh, all that great of a time for them. And and then I think even more to the point, to be clear, because we are called not just by Christ to to look out for our brothers and sisters, we are called to love our neighbor as a, mm -hmm. as ourselves. And you know th there are there are many of our neighbors uh, for whom this this uh again this idealized version of america was actually not so good and so are we thinking about what is best for our neighbor what is best for our community or are we so consumed with self with self preservation yeah. with with our own with our own privileged status that we become blind to what may be the advancement uh uh, uh and the progress and the betterment of our community around us. Uh, and that, of course, is, you know, it's be, it raises some uncomfortable questions. I've used that phrase a couple of times, I think, but some uncomfortable questions around race and around identity in the church. And 
you know, what gospel is it truly, or which God is it truly, or or which kingdom is it truly that we aspire to? Uh, and obviously, the conclusion that I reach in, in parts of the book is that we have effectively committed the great sin of idolatry yeah. in this nation by 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 putting on a pedestal this 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 idealized version of America that we that we are so eager to reclaim when in fact the only kingdom we are supposed to be pursuing is the kingdom of God. This is really fascinating and and I don't part of me wants to just keep going, but for the sake of those who of, of our listeners who just are kind of like flummoxed as wait what what podcast am I listening to? Let me let me go back and ask you a um again a more kind of uh uh, democracy kind of question. Um, you know, there there is a notion, especially within Western Europe, where Christian is an adjective that doesn't describe a faith, it describes an identity. It describes, mm. you know, it's basically, you know, a historical legacy that um, has created this civilization. And most important thing is it's not Islam. And you know there are um, there there's evidence within you know polling data and others that says that for many of the people who are committed to this kind of a Trumpian worldview, um, they they are evangelical in in that identity sense more than in that faith sense that they um that they're concerned about Christian. Christian culture and a Christian nation, but they're not necessarily, you know, spending a lot of time in church. But it seems to me like your uh, the narratives and and the really heartbreaking stories of these pastors trying to navigate this um, this maelstrom that they're suddenly just um, tossed into. Uh, makes me think that you don't think that's true, or you don't think that's true anymore. It may it certainly may not be all of the faithful evangelicals in the nation who have kind of bought into this narrative, but there's a sizable percentage that have. So, Chris, it, it, it's a complicated question, and and I'll unpack it in some layers. I, I think the the first thing I would point to is we saw the data during Trump's presidency that 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 proved uh, beyond any reasonable doubt that you have uh, a a growing number of Trump supporters, white Trump voters who were self-identifying as evangelical in this country, even as the attendance in their churches was declining rather significantly. And so that, for starters, I think gives us a pretty clear indication of the identity, the self-identification phenomenon that you're describing that, that, that we've seen in Europe, we've seen in some other places, but it is certainly ascendant here in the United States. Um, uh, and that, I think, reflects a macro uh, development in which we've seen over the last, certainly over the last 15 to 20 years, but I think arguably you trace it back into, you know, certainly the, the mid to early 1980s, this 
this transformation of what it meant to be an evangelical and what the common understanding was of one who identified as evangelical, certainly in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, into the mid 80s, it was pretty commonly understood that evangelical spoke to a spiritual disposition and was a distinct subculture within a subculture. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was a religious phenomenon, a religious identifier. Um, as the as the moral majority and then its successor groups, the Christian coalition and whatnot, as they really got their hooks deeper into the Republican Party and as the sort of unholy alliance uh, of, of religion and politics became more powerful, that signifier, that, identi uh, that identity marker uh, of being an evangelical, it began to shift. And I think where it is today, as I write in the introduction of the book, is is very much a marker of white conservative Republican who who happens to go to church maybe <laughs> right like that that's mm -hmm. that's where the that's where the term is now and it is there for good reason and as I said a minute ago the social science proved this out during the Trump years that even as fewer of these people were going to church more of them were identifying as evangelicals I think. I think one level removed from this, however, is where there's an even greater crisis. And this was what you were hinting at at the end of your question, which is that you have in far too many of these churches, folks who do still attend somewhat regularly, folks who are members of congregations, folks who would, you know, uh, by any qualifier who who would uh, who would fit in the category of a church going Bible believing evangelical who are simply not all that engaged with their faith who are simply not all that engaged with the Bible and, and this is not just something that I would ask listeners to take my word for. I've spent time now with hundreds and hundreds of pastors around the country, almost all of them, who are leaders in in conservative reformed evangelical settings these are these are not you know woke pastors these are not marxist pastors these are not you know members of the deep state these are people who if you are in conservative evangelical listening these are pastors like you people who you would take spiritual guidance from and when they spoke to me in their very honest moments the, the recurring dilemma that many of them were pointing to is that a lot of the people in their church are 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 far more uh, prone to viewing their faith through the context of their politics rather than viewing their politics through the context of their faith. In other words, the tail has begun to wag the dog mm -hmm. in too many of these settings. And the 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 rhetoric around imminent Armageddon in this country and Christians are going to be persecuted and it's good versus evil and and you have to be on the right side. All of that doomsday, thinking that has been sort of percolating in the evangelical movement for many decades has really come home to roost. And so for me, the crisis is not, you know, the, the people who claim to be evangelical, but who don't really go to church. It's the church going evangelicals who have started to lose the plot because they have gotten so worked up over the, the perceived threats to this country and to their own status. Yeah. You have, um, lefty or, you know, basically um, Democrats who see this kind of amalgam of uh, politics and Christianity and they're repelled by it. But they probably in their heart of hearts would not have the same reaction to 
um, a a black Protestant church that had a souls of the polls and brought everybody to vote right after church on a Sunday. And you'd probably, uh, you could reverse everything I just said about somebody who's a Republican, right? Who they'd say, you know, boy, that's just using religion and it's not, it's not um, authentic and it's, um, it, it's bad theology and it's, and it's, you know, not, uh, it, it's using religion. And I wonder after all of this, whether you have a sense of, you know, what do you think, what would it mean for your, your, to be a, uh, a, a person of faith and to be engaged in the political world? How, you know, how would you do that in a way that was, you know, authentic and that, you know, got the tail and the dog right? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And uh, I want to be clear that, um, you know, political identity is not, cannot be, should never be confused with identity in Christ. And what I what I have said in, in several settings, and this upsets some people invariably, not that I care at all, but just to be <laughs> very clear, my position on this is consistent. The purpose of the church is to advance God's kingdom. It is not to advance a political agenda. It is not to advance any sort of a partisan crusade. Uh, whatever the stakes may be, it is not the mission, the purpose of the church. Uh, the purpose of the church is to advance God's kingdom, is to make disciples, it is to carry the gospels to the end of the earth and to preach the, the message of, of God's redemptive love and Jesus's sacrifice uh, for us to all the nations and to those who might otherwise never hear it. The concern I have in all of these settings is that when uh, in, a, in a church, specifically in a sanctuary, which is set apart for the worship of God and for the making of disciples, when we begin to elevate other sorts of gods in those settings. So when Joe Biden is in a black church in Charleston, South Carolina earlier this week, and people in the sanctuary are chanting four more years, mm -hmm. I find that to be repugnant. And I find it to be dangerous because for anyone on the outside looking in, they start to believe that the church is just a part of this means to an end partisan political crusade. It just depends on which flavor of partisan tribalism you choose to engage with. When in fact, what we know from scripture is that Jesus was not partisan. Now, that's not to say Jesus was not political. And let me be clear on this. People will inevitably point to the abolitionist movement, to the civil rights movement, and say, well, what about the church's role there? I believe that the, that the, that Christians individually and collectively should speak their conscience, should be engaged civically, should make their voice heard in the public square. I do not think that Christians should weaponize the church itself to try to win the culture wars, to try to win elections, to try to dominate the culture around them, because inevitably that mission creep 
even if it is for the best of intentions and with the purest of motivations at first, it will eventually turn the church into something that it is not intended to be. So I think that there's a fine line Christians have to walk here where they can be engaged and they can be participants in a healthy way without it giving way to this sort of idolatry and the sort of tail wagging the dog that we've been describing. That's, um, that's really good. And, um, you know, um, rendering under Caesar, that which is Caesar, rendering under God, that which is God, you know, that's easy to say. It's not always easy to do, <laughs> but that only raises the, uh, the stakes of being self-critical, right? And, and, uh, and asking about whether or not what you're doing is authentic. Um, anyway, um, I've really, you know, enjoyed this conversation. I thought the book, actually, I thought you both, both of your books were really terrific. Uh, it's really, um, uh, this one, I think, especially is so honest and, uh, and heartfelt and, and uh, the stories are so real. It's, um, it's uh, uh, really, I, I really thought it was a, a terrific book. So anyway, um, I really want to thank you for, um, for, for joining us and uh, for your work and for the conversation. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thank you for saying all that. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for, for leading the conversation on an ongoing basis. It's, it's very important and I'm grateful to you for it. 